Hi, welcome to Dyslexia Explored. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Darius Nondoron, your host. And today I've got a, a lady in her 20s who teaches art to young people in the National Gallery of Art here in Edinburgh. She's a youth worker in high schools, does group work. She's an illustrator, runs her own illustration business, and is also a writer with some published short stories and a novel in the pipeline. And all of this with dyslexia. I'm really excited to share with you the story of Hannah Kelly. Hannah, it's great to have you here. I'm so delighted to be here. I'm excited about all the questions you have to ask me and the ways I'm going to figure out how to answer them. Yeah, well, we, we got connected through a mutual friend because of a post you put up on Instagram. That's right. About you just passing your driving test. Yes. And you made a point about being dyslexic and driving. Yes, that's right. I found driving one of the biggest hurdles in my life as a dyslexic person. I couldn't believe how difficult I was finding it and was a bit embarrassed about that. So I didn't tell anybody until I had passed. And then I felt like I was free to tell the world <laughs> that and, I had managed it. that's how you got on this podcast. Yeah. That's great. And so we're going to cover that in the next episode, your actual driving and dyslexia story. Yeah. And in this episode, we're going to talk about your dyslexia story so far. Yeah. So we're going to do another two-parter here on the podcast. Sounds great. So let's follow the nine questions that we usually do here. So in the beginning, what was life like before your dyslexia story began? The kind of Bilbo Baggins in the Shire moments. The hero in his ordinary world. That's right. <laughs> That's what yes. they call it in storytelling. It's actually quite difficult to remember further back than being dyslexic. I was seven when I first went to a tutor and I don't remember being particularly bad at school. My parents noticed that I was struggling. What I do remember is emotional rather than academic. I remember being afraid of studying and I've tried to explain it to myself in the way that you do when something has passed by. You look back and you say, well, what, what was that? And I think it felt a lot like just being in a classroom and constantly being asked questions. It felt a lot like standing in front of a big black hole. You were asked a question and you knew that to answer the question, you had to get across the hole to the other side. So you had a problem on this side, the solution was on the other side and you had to make your way across. And in the classroom, you were given all kinds of tools to give you stepping stones across that black hole. And mm. you would watch as your peers stepped across the stepping stones and reached the other side. But you would step onto the same stepping stones they did and you would fall down the hole. And you had no idea why. And you became afraid of the hole. You become mm. afraid of being asked a question or faced with a problem. And all of the things that other people are using to get themselves to the solution are dropping you down the hole. And it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing to be the kid in the classroom who doesn't understand. And I think my earliest memories aren't academic, they're social. I remember the social implications of not understanding things and how it affected me in a classroom. And that's my, uh, before I realized why I was struggling or even learned the word dyslexia, I remember being afraid of not knowing the answer to questions. Well, so that brings us to the kind of wake up call yeah. moment. So like the big, the question was, what was the wake up call? Was it a person? Was it an experience? I mean, is there some sort of moment when you were 
in school that kind of mm. could you describe some sort of you know you were talking about it was a social experience mm. I remember pretending I hadn't done I'd forgotten my maths homework because I just couldn't do it I remember oh it's funny now to progress up a reading level in the primary school I attended you were allowed to read a book but you had to write a review of that book and the review had to get marked and unless you passed you got a pass grade on the review you weren't allowed to read another book so I would read a book I would write a review and the spelling and handwriting was so poor she couldn't part my teacher couldn't pass me and I wasn't allowed to take out another book from the library and I stopped reading and I my reading level was so low just because I couldn't which is such a shame because I love stories but I remember watching my friends read the Harry Potter series and I wasn't allowed I wasn't allowed on those shelves wow I remember that so what would you say is the wake up call for you when it came to dyslexia what was the moment that you kind of or was it your parents woke up to it or was it you that woke up to it you know where's the or a wake-up moment? My parents were first, I think. So my dad is dyslexic. Actually, my mum my and sister are as well. But my dad's dyslexia, yeah, I think, is closest to mine. And his experience in school was very negative. And he saw me struggling and he thought, that's not OK. So they approached a woman um, from our church, actually, and she was a dyslexia, kind of an early, adopt, early adopter of dyslexia teaching. Um, and they asked if she would sit with me once a week and they also got me a tutor for math so once a week from when I was seven until about 11 I had a tutor for English and handwriting and I had a different tutor for maths. Helen Watling and Claire Nordali are their names and they were wonderful and even then I don't think I would have I don't think I knew the word dyslexia I just knew that once a week I went to their houses and had to solve more problems. Yeah. Yeah. So what was the main challenge in your story what would you say is the main thing you had to face i think if i go back to the analogy of having to climb over the hole a teacher in a classroom has a couple of ways to teach a child to solve a problem whether that's reading writing mathematics and they will try more than one with you i mean i had good teachers i would say if one didn't work they would try another one but in my mind all of the different ways of getting across the hole and solving a problem they compounded in my head I remember I had a teacher who tried to to make us think of the shape that a word made so the word cat how did if I outlined the word cat did it look like a cat and so I would and then other teachers who were doing the phonetic alphabet other teachers who were doing different methods and in the end you just get so bogged down by all the different strategies you can't make head nor tail of it yeah so actually having a having a tutor one tutor just with me in one room with one method, it, yeah. that really helped. Right. Yeah. So your main challenge was confusion? I think confusion, yeah. Yeah, confusion and fear of the whole. I would panic. And I think as an adult, I talk to adult dyslexics and they talk about that same panic when faced with numbers, like a tax return. Uh-huh. A tax return is terrifying to somebody who's afraid of numbers. Yes. Um, and your mind goes blank which is why exams are scary, because you are under a lot of pressure to jump over that hole and solve the problem. You've got a time constraint to do it in, and things about your future hang on the solution of you jumping over the hole. And as soon as you add in panic, that hole gets bigger and bigger. So 
anxiety as much as yeah. fear as well. Yeah. Fear and, and and anxiety. And a desire to please. It's yeah. you want you want to be able to answer the question just so the teacher smiles and moves on to somebody else. Well, you know, I've been thinking a lot this week about being a disappointment. Yeah. And I think, you know, if I'm if I look into my dyslexia journey, I think probably the word disappointment is probably one of the key points for me. I didn't want to be a disappointment to my teachers. Yeah. And I didn't want to be a disappointment to my mum. Yeah. And I became a disappointment to my teachers. I became a disappointment to my mum, although she still believed in me. Yeah. But you could still see the look of disappointment. Like, are you really trying? Yeah. You know? Yes, you're I, trying. I, 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 I really can't am. do it. I don't know how to convince you yeah. anymore. Um, and then I became a disappointment to myself. Yeah. And I, I, for me, that's one of the biggest words. Uh, how do you relate to that? I think I didn't like feeling left behind. Ah, it's the same yes. thing as when your friends go out for a pizza and you don't get invited. Yes. Your friends can read that book and you're not invited to the party. Yes. Um, and you just... And you, you can see why children with dyslexia behave badly in a classroom all they ever see is a big black hole they can't jump over. They know they can't jump over it and everybody else is. That would drive you crazy. Yeah, yeah. I think you've got two options really is to fight or flight. Yeah. And that's like you either get angry yeah. or you withdraw. Yeah. And some children at that stage, they withdraw inwardly. Yeah. But they also withdraw inside their head. Stop trying. And say, I'm leaving school. I They've left school yeah. already yeah. at age 11 or yeah. 12 or whatever. Yeah. And um, it's just a matter of years until they can punch their card at 16 and get out of there. Yeah. So they've withdrawn. But there's other kids that fight. And, and I was intrigued by your comment earlier before this because I heard you a bit of fight language inside of you there you know like you tell me a little bit about part of the challenge was your response was to fight yeah I'm a bit embarrassed about this because it feels like an arrogance but when we had diagnosed me with dyslexia I could have been given extra time in exams and I refused it and I wouldn't even have the school acknowledge that I was dyslexic because I wanted Oh, have you seen Chariots of Fire? Yes. There's a bit in Chariots of Fire where Eric Liddell falls down. Mm. Then he gets up and he beats everybody, even though he had a disadvantage. And there was a part of me that I think I ran faster because I had a limp. I just, oh, there's, I don't know. I don't know what the reflex is. It's just like, okay, well, this isn't working. I'm still, I'm still going to crush this. Yeah, it's something to prove. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's the other thing about it's compensation, isn't it, for being left behind. If you feel left behind, yeah. you want to come back out with a trophy yes. from your experience. Yeah. Yeah. And so you're talking about your exams, aren't you? Yes. GCSEs, A-levels. Yeah. What happened? What happened? Well, our school was interesting. There was definitely a transition from primary to secondary. So I had tutoring up until secondary school okay and the secondary school I went to other things happened so I broke both my arms in the first year of secondary school and because I missed so much school I got put down a set um, I got put down to the bottom of all the sets uh, so when I came back to school I had dyslexia and you know bottom, bottom set. sets of everything uh, I know it well and it was really interesting that first year 
I I would always get ill on Wednesdays. I just didn't feel very well on Wednesdays. And my dad would keep coming to pick me up from school until one day he was driving us home and he said, Hannah, what class do you have on Wednesdays at about 10? And I said, oh, it's maths. <laughs> and um, I hadn't realised, I was so afraid of maths. I would, be, I would feel ill and go to the reception to say, please take me home, I'm not well. I wasn't ill, I hated maths. Uh -huh. um, so that was interesting. Maths, English, I overcame my fear of English and now storytelling and reading and writing are some of the delights of my life. But maths, I hate still. But our school was interesting. They want, they were one, it was one of the first academies in England and so a lot of their academic planning was quite experimental. So they had us all do our GCSEs a year early. So I was put in to do English literature, mathematics and science all a year ahead of everybody else. So for our American and Australian listeners, how old were you? Oh, I don't know. That's not, you're asking me to tell you a number. As a number. I can't do that. <laughs> so I think you set your GCSEs when you're 15. Yeah. So I was and then you start A-levels 16 and 17? That's right. So I did A-levels at 15 and I did GCSEs at 14. Oh, right. I think. So you you did your exams a year early. What what did that? What what was the effect of that? That was another way for me to prove that even with the disadvantage and a year early, I could still do it. And, did and you... I'm not proud of that. I'm a bit embarrassed that's going to go public because right. I don't think that you're calling it a a fight, a desire to fight. I think I could have done it with a bit more humility. I think I did it out of spite. Because mm -hmm. you get bullied, don't you? And you get pushed a bit down. And it was my six, succeeding academically became my way of pushing back. Mm -hmm. Were you bullied? Really badly. How did people bully you? How long? How? In what way? Because I know a number of the students that in, the, in our yeah. that I teach, you know, they're getting bullied right now for their dyslexia and so on. Was it because of dyslexia or was it It just was a mixture of things. I think... Oh, if I, when I think of kids being bullied now, my heart goes out to you because it's really difficult to report it. Bullying is just so underhand. You notice it in a look, you notice it in a gesture. I had a friendship group and um, I don't know why I was in their friendship group, but there was one girl who really didn't like me and she would ask me to, to like find the table we were all going to sit at at lunch so I would go and save this table and she would come in and see what I had sat and deliberately take the whole group somewhere else so that they were sitting somewhere different from me you just become a sort of social pariah I think but the, that's interesting because the library became my consolation I loved the library I would read flipping all the books in the library um, and I'm glad I did because I'm a writer and writers need to have read lots of books so the library became your sanctuary and then books became yeah, absolutely. another sanctuary. Yeah, so it's and it's funny because if you feel disempowered in the classroom, whether that's socially or academically, it's the same reason why there's a, a kid that wants to be funny. Because if, it, if you have something to offer the social dynamic of a classroom, yeah. you're useful. Yeah. And it's interesting because it, as soon as I had an academic edge, I became useful to the classroom. Ah. So actually... When I was better at studying and started to really enjoy English literature, science, history, I became useful to the room and I found I was much more accepted 
when I had something to bring. Mm. That was your thing to bring. That was my thing, yeah. So you talk about studying, yeah. you know, like, um, well, let's stick to the questions, Sorry, yeah. mm-hmm. shall we? I'm, I'm jumping a bit, but I'll do that in, the, in one of the later questions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How did you do in the exams, by the way? Do you want to say? Go on, tell us. I was in the newspaper for having so, really? so many A's and A stars. Oh, go on, tell us. Well, please. I remember... I know a lot of dyslexics <sighs> won't say, but I, I think it's useful for for children and parents to hear, oh my goodness, dyslexics actually do well at school. Yeah. Yes, they do. Um, I remember the first time I realised I could be good at school, and I remember because my English teacher took me out of the classroom and she just tested our entire year group, and I'd got the highest mark from our year group, and she took me to one side and she said, Hannah, you've got the top. And I remember bursting into t- I just cry at every juncture in my life, really, but I oh, remember yeah. bursting into tears because I was good at it. Yes. It's quite a power it's a powerful moment. I think it really is important to be good at something. Yeah. I think I, I think that's one of the biggest pieces of advice every parent of a dyslexic needs to hear. Help your child be good at something. Yeah. Help your child win at something. Yeah. Not just be good, but win at yeah. something. Whatever it is. I mean for my daughter it was winning a sailing competition in the summer. Right. We did it That's amazing. year after year after year. Yeah. Mm. And the rest of the year, she's chronically ill, also dyslexic. But that was a win. Yeah. You, you've got to have a win. Yeah. You know, so everyone can win at something. Yeah. It makes a difference if there are people cheering you on. Yeah. I think if you win in isolation, it's not quite as sweet. The fact that I had had so many tutors and my parents had fiercely believed that I could do things. Yeah. When you get that final victory it's all the sweeter because of the people who have believed in you the whole time when you didn't believe that you could do it. Yeah. We need to go back to your tutor and hear some of your tutor stories. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we haven't talked much about that. We'll talk about that, about learning moments, yeah, yeah. in the next one. But you didn't answer the question about the exam grades. Tell oh, us more I don't about the want to grade. tell you. I got uh, an A in English literature a year early, GCSE. Then I got an A in the AS level a year early. The only thing the only thing I got B's in was mathematics. And, and frankly, I was delighted to have to never do mathematics again when I passed the GCSE. So you got an A in A-level English? A year early. And a year early. Yeah. That's quite remarkable for someone who's dyslexic. Thank you. And with no extra time? No extra time. How did you do it? Some people might be listening and thinking, well, she's not probably that dyslexic then. Yeah. I think... But I, I know, you know... You because we haven't talked about the things that I learnt with my tutor. No, we It haven't. would be easy to think that I struggled to read and write and then I was fine. Yeah. The, it was a bit like being given... The tools were like being given a key to an entire world. And as soon as I had the key and the confidence that I could problem-solve my way out of reading and writing and mathematical challenges... The confidence and some of those tools were enough to propel me into the world of reading and writing and then basically come up with my own problem solving after I had gotten over the first hurdle. Does that make sense? Okay, so you were given some core tools right at the beginning, unlocked some doors, gave you some confidence, got some momentum, kept going and improvising along the way. Well, 7 to 11 is still 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, still four years of tools. So let's go to that. So the next question, question five, is what were your most 
info uh, we didn't talk about rewards but i'd really like to hear about the learning moments yeah. what were the most influential learning moments was it a person it was helen watling helen watling was my handwriting and spelling teacher for four years and she first of all she was just very patient with me she never got angry and she was never frustrated if I couldn't do a problem. Mm. And she was happy to try as many times as it took until I got it. And just being in an atmosphere where failure, failure doesn't equate to failing to solve the problem, that's quite a powerful thing. But in terms of actually learning, she would give me a tray from the kitchen and she would put uh, rice in the tray. And to learn my letters, I had to learn the shapes that the letters made. Um, first of all, with my finger, I would draw the shapes of the letters mm. with my finger so that I learned by memory what to do, what shape a letter took. I still draw the shapes of letters on the roof of my mouth with my tongue wow. when I'm not sure what the word looks like. We learnt things like to spell the word because. She taught me big elephants Oh, hang on, I've forgotten now, out of pressure. Big elephants can always understand small elephants. Okay. Um, and then she would ask us to make up silly sentences for the words that we found difficult. Um, and she had a word box, and we would pull out... She would ask me to spell a word, and I would pull the letters out of the box and then form the words. I remember getting that wrong a lot, um, because the English language is difficult. The, th the thing that it sounds like is so different from what it looks like. And then there are rules that break their own rules, like E before I and or I before E. Um, yeah, and years of that then. Just so yeah, handwriting lessons. She would give us the old fashioned, give me the old fashioned, sort of four line handwriting, and you would do a high loop or a low loop, um, mm. and just doing over and over again. And then she would give me homework to do. Did you get any kind of study skills training along the way? Well, I didn't have exams until secondary school so I think she t she's told me that I would phone her up occasionally and ask her for study tools. I remember just needing to make revision as creative as possible and thinking of it as art homework rather than English homework. Oh, wow. So if you can and it was about getting me away from an A4 lined piece of paper because actually there are just there are certain things that you do on an A4 lined piece of paper that you don't do on an A0 piece of rolled out paper with paint. Yeah. And actually your brain engages, mine does, ten times more on an A0 rolled out piece of paper with coloured pens yeah. because you've learnt to play with big pieces of paper and coloured pens, but yeah. you've learnt to be serious with lined A4. So yeah. if you can get yourself out of a mindset of seriousness into a mindset of play, your brain absorbs, or mine did, so much more. Make it colourful. Make whatever you're trying to learn into something fun, whatever you find fun. Yeah. Um, and your brain just... It's like the way that we remember song lyrics. If you ask a kid to remember a poem by Carol Ann Duffy, they probably won't, because it's written. If you ask them to remember song lyrics to an Ed Sheeran song, they know it instantly. So why not learn your English poetry as song lyrics and you'll remember it. Because remembering big pieces of text is really difficult for a, like an A-level English yeah. exam. Yeah. That was always really intimidating. But make it into what you enjoy. For the podcast listeners, episode one, Rossi <laughs> Stone talked about how he did that as, long as, as well as uh, creating comics. That's great. 
This podcast is sponsored by DyslexiaProductivityCoaching.com, which helps you organize yourself creatively with a productivity system for Apple devices. So I know that you met your dyslexia tutor recently. Last week, yeah. And we waited for this podcast just so that you could sort of refresh yourself with that. What were her memories of you? You know, from her point of view, if she was to tell your dyslexia story, what sort of insights did she have? She remembers me crying in her kitchen at the beginning of every lesson, which is fair because I remember that. She had to persuade me to sit down at a table. We actually picked her up from her house before we took her out for lunch and her house hadn't changed at all from when I was seven. There was still a, um, a cockerel tea cosy over the tea and there was still a gold alligator nutcracker on the table exactly where it was when I was seven years old. It was amazing. And um, she would let me, I wouldn't study until I had one eaten shortbread and two been allowed to feed the goldfish. And when I had done those two things, it was agreed that I would finally sit down. But she said, I just was, I was, it was anxiety inducing. Mm. And I said, well, why do you think I cried? And she said, you didn't like knowing that I was going to ask you a question that you didn't know if you could answer it. Mm. And that's what I mean about the black hole. Yes. It's, it's terrifying to be faced with a black hole and not know how to get to the other side. But in terms of rewards, if I can jump to answering their question. Yeah, jump to what were the rewards you got from this whole Well, the thing, about, the thing about problem solving, if I can keep using my black hole analogy... Love it, keep going. ...is that a dyslexic person becomes acquainted with problem solving. Yes. In a way that maybe a normal learner might not, because if they just follow the steps they're taught to get over the black hole and they get their reward at the end... They've learned how to follow instructions. They haven't learned how to look at a black hole, look at a problem and think, well, if I can't use those steps, what else can I use? Maybe I could use this hot air balloon. Maybe I could use this weird ladder. Maybe I could just climb down to the bottom of the hole and have a look around. You get so acquainted with looking at a problem from lots of different angles because you know you need to get yourself across. You know that's not working and you've got to find another way to do it. And that's the essence of creativity. If you can look at a problem from an angle that other people aren't looking at it, that is the role of an artist. That's the role of a storyteller, to find something that everyone's been looking at for a thousand years and say, look at it from over here. Mm. Maybe you'll see the world differently. And if I could encourage young dyslexic now, dyslexics now, I was in a meeting at the National Galleries of Scotland talking about how education is changing and talking about the needs of employers when they're looking to hire people. Um, and the last five years, the top things that employers are looking for have changed. They are now creativity and problem solving. And dyslexia, dyslexic people have an edge because they have learned from an early age creativity and problem solving. So I wouldn't think of your handicap as an eternal handicap. It is just teaching you very early how to look at a problem from a different angle. And God knows we're living in a world that's going to need some pretty serious problem solving in the next 10, 20 years. And what if it's the kids at the back of the classroom who were afraid of learning, who were actually just learning how to look at the world differently and come up with solutions that other people don't see? Yes. There are some children who don't learn to go across the black hole. Yeah. You did. Yeah. And there are some dyslexics who withdraw. Yeah. And they go in inwards. Yeah. 
And so not every dyslexic actually does learn that skill. How to jump over. They have that potential to. Yeah. And I think that's a hard thing to hear and even to say. Yeah. But there's plenty of evidence. Look in jails, for example. You yeah, know, okay. People, 40, you know, 30 to 40% of people in jails are dyslexic. I didn't know that. And then if you look at entrepreneurs, 30 to 40% of them are dyslexic. Yeah, okay. So you can go yeah. one of two ways of problem solving, <laughs> yeah. you know. And I, I see a pattern, you know, where there are people who have intervened yeah. and said, through the crying, the screaming, the tantrums yeah. and all of that, we, we're going to make sure you get what you need. Yeah. You, you got it and came across the other side. Yeah. Which is great. Absolutely great. So the rewards are problem problem solving and yeah. the creativity that comes with it. Yeah. So that kind of ties in with a little bit about what you're doing now. Hmm. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing now then. I do lots of things. I I write. I'm passionate about storytelling, so I'm trying to write novels, trying to get them published. I've had some short stories published. One today, actually, which is quite nice. And In where? In Sputnik magazine. Sputnik. Yeah. And I draw, so I started a small illustration business, so I take commissions. You can see me on hannahkelly.co.uk. They are awesome. Thank you. I love them. Especially these kind of black black and white kind of illustrations of Edinburgh scenes and so on. Yeah. What a great style. The nice thing is that you can adapt it to anybody's need. So, if you know, if they want to immortalize their wife's favorite view i can draw that or yeah. if they want a personalized map of the highlands i can do that basically yeah. whatever they have in mind i can absolutely brilliant turn into a drawing and actually really quite reasonable prices as well Well, thanks i thought they were really high <laughs> no i think they're quite reasonable oh, great. actually okay um so yeah you do the illustration yeah i work for the national galleries of scotland um taking young people on tours of the galleries um and teaching art workshops and then I lead a small youth work charity out in West Lothian. Oh, what's it called? It's called the Busy Project. Busy Project? Yeah. And what do you do? We do... Well, I work three days a week and in that time run three sort of community groups. So we work in the high school, we run lunch clubs and we work outside of the school and then we take them on residential trips throughout the year. And the focus of it? Is there a particular focus? Community building, and it's it's a part of Script Union Scotland. So oh, right, it is okay. um, just for young people who are exploring faith. So the Scottish curriculum at the, mo- curriculum at the moment um, allows for people of faith, um, actually demands that people of faith would go into RMPS classrooms um, to talk about their experience. So I get to do some of that, which I really enjoy. Brilliant, brilliant. And then the fourth thing teaching art, youth work, illustration, and then we've got the writer. We covered all yeah, four. Yeah, that's all four. My goodness. So many things, day, yeah. Life. We've talked about question five, what were your most influential learning moments? Yeah. Oh, let's talk about mind mapping. What, what's your experience of mind mapping, if at all? I don't know if I was given mind mapping as a tool. I think I did use it. I remember revising for my GCSEs, and having to learn a lot of history information, like dates, which again, as soon as it's a number, becomes problematic. Um, but I would mind map for that. I think because I think you end up actually remembering, or I would remember the space on a page where something was written. Yeah. So when you're in an exam, you visualise the map, 
and then you follow the route along to the information that you want a bit like a neural pathway yes and if you can follow along the pathway maybe by color coding yeah. you normally can actually just see in your mind's eye yeah what it is that you wrote down is that how mind mapping works that's it yeah. great it's the only way i can do it <laughs> That was my workaround. That was my bridge across the chasm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It was basically a net. Yeah. Through across. Such Instead a of good stepping analogy. stones, it's like yeah. a net and I scrambled across this Little net. Little roofs. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Threads of fine thoughts. You're like, I don't know if I can do it on this, but you can. Yeah. Not always. Sometimes they're not strong enough, but you have to build them up. So that's interesting. So what advice? Oh, two questions. Um, my favorite questions. Yeah. The advice to your teenage self and the advice to yourself as a parent. So mm. if you could go back in time, what point would you go back in time to? And what advice would you give yourself? And here is one way of doing it. If it was, an, if it was a card. You write yourself a card. You write yourself a card. I actually did that. You did? did when I was 12, I wrote myself a letter for when I was 20. Oh, you did? Yeah. Brilliant. What did it say? Do you still have it? Yeah, I do. It said everything's going to be okay. So you've answered the, the next kind and of was, question. Yeah. Everything's going to be and okay. it was, yeah. And how did you feel at the time when you wrote it? Like everything wasn't okay. Yeah. I think I wrote Keep Writing. Because oh. like storytelling... Was it by twelve? I had done all the done quite a lot of. I'd started reading, and I knew that I wanted to tell stories, and I knew it was going to be difficult. So I told myself to carry on. Wow, you know what we're going to be doing next in Bullet Map Studio? What is teaching nine to twelve year olds how to tell a story? Oh wow! In exam conditions. Yeah. So they learn how to tell the story. How to finish a story. Yeah. Because dyslexics are terrible at finishing a story. Oh, yes, that's so true on so many levels. <laughs> it's, it's just embarrassing. You know, like you start having a conversation with a dyslexic and you go, tell me that story. And they go, oh, there was this dragon and there was this it's over here. It's because they're mind mapping verbally they and they're going off in eight directions Absolutely. at once. Because I think when a dyslexic tells a story, they're describing a landscape yes. rather than a route. Yes, and so they feel that they have to describe the whole landscape yeah. and then tell you the route. Yeah. And you're like, 15 minutes later, <laughs> okay, I know this landscape. Is the dragon important? No, it's not important. It's all about that yeah. man who's diving under the water under this boat. Yeah. Well, then why did you tell me about the dragon? But stories have to have a narrative thread. You have yes. to have somebody who wants something, the things that stop them from getting what they want and how they overcome that to achieve their goal, which is basically the story of dyslexia, isn't it? Like, yes. what's, the, what's the problem? Yeah. How are you going to solve it? And how hard is it to get across yes. to the problem solved? Yes, which is why we have these four questions. It's yeah. a narrative art. Yeah. There's the wake-up call, That's which right. is the important bit. Yes. Because you, you need some moment of pain yeah. or something that wakes you up. Yeah. And it wakes you up, and then you yeah. have to decide to take that challenge on or not. There's often a helper as well, like Gandalf or, Obi, or Obi-Wan Kenobi, yes. and often they have to be killed off before you can really explore yes. your own abilities. Yeah, yeah. It's all very yeah, exciting. It is. And we're going to teach um, these nine-year-olds these uh, storytelling techniques. Yeah. And woven into all of it is all of the techniques that I teach adults and teenagers to do exams. Yeah. We're going to pull all that down and say, well, use this map 
to brainstorm. Clever. Okay? Yeah. And then use this map to scaffold it a bit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then use this map to map out your question. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then let's take the question, add the scaffolding, and then add your brainstorming on and you've got your outline. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then write out your... And so the child is doing what they love doing is telling a story and finishing a story. Yeah. And they're learning the skill as they go along. Yeah. Which is... Because I reckon pretty much every piece of writing or project or whatever is a story yeah and if you can tell a story you can write an essay yeah. history essay or yeah. an analytical essay yeah whatever you know so um because history essay is not just the story of the history it's the story of two academics sitting in a corner of a room having an argument oh i think this happened oh well what about this and yeah. what about this and what about that and you're like yeah, and then you, as the listener, the writer, are saying, well, on balance, yeah. I was listening to such and such, and I actually prefer to think about such and such. And people go, I could write a history essay That's like that. That's such a good way of explaining it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. thanks. Well, I, I can't do it unless I've got an imaginative construct, Yeah. you know? Yeah. And then it's like, okay, let's... Einstein, when he was doing the theory of rel relativity, he came up with the theory of relativity by imagining himself sitting on a beam of light with a watch. I did not know that. And he's, he's imagining himself going through the universe at the speed of light and looking at the watch and asking himself what's happening to time. And then he comes up with E equals MC squared. That's amazing. So all these formulas yeah. are simply footsteps. Yeah of a concept if someone had let and if me you can imagine the concept yeah you can understand the footstep yeah if someone had let me use my imagination in maths class that would have been really nice yes absolutely so anyway storytelling i yeah. think storytelling is so key for us as dyslexics yeah i think it's the doorway into understanding core skills for dealing with with life yeah with school yeah with work yeah. with projects Anyway, we went off on one there. And um, if I was a parent? Yes, what advice would yeah. you give to yourself as a parent? I thought about this on the bus on the way here, and I decided that I think there is a lot more, there's a lot more help for parents these days than there was probably for my parents. But what I would say was that while as a parent you consider the academic ramifications and tools that you need to give your child for exams, don't forget the social implications of having dyslexia for example if a 14 year old is struggling to form a word they might be embarrassed to text their friends or be on the whatsapp message group yeah. because they're not going to spell it right they might be reticent to make plans because they're going to have to organize bus routes and cinema timetables and that's really intimidating and so at the same time as figuring out how to pass a maths exam yeah. maybe sit down and talk about how dyslexia is affecting their friendship group yeah um because that's as much a part of growing up have you watched our dear john video no well um there's day in the life of a dyslexic teenager it's one of our most popular videos yeah and it takes the life of a dyslexic teenager and all the little things that happen to him yeah and uh, one of them is that the teacher says he has to stay over at lunch to finish off the blackboard. Yeah. And so his friends all go off for lunch. Yeah. And he has to stay at home at, in the classroom to write it up. And 
he texts them to see how they're doing, but it takes forever to write the text. Yeah. And so, you know, you're caught in this catch-22 where you want to stay part, catch, keep up Don't with your friends. Don't be left behind, yeah. Not be left behind, etc. Yeah. And this is... And John doesn't know he's dyslexic. He's yeah. mildly dyslexic. And yeah. these are all the tiny little things that just continually grind. Yeah. It's funny that. So the social aspects. Yeah, it's a big deal. So tools. What tools are in your tool bag when it comes to dyslexia? Colours are important to me. Mm. So colour coding things. This leads on to driving, actually, because I remember learning to drive obviously much more vividly than I remember learning to read and write. Yes. Because 7 to 11, and I think I've blocked it out because it's awful, I don't remember it. But I do remember the strategies we put into place learning how to drive. Okay. So is that a good segue? That's a great segue okay. to the next podcast. Yeah. That is <laughs> Hannah, brilliant. So... Tell us, give us a little bit of an insight into, well, you talked about driving, yeah. colours. What other tools are in your tool bag? Do you, writing, tell us a little bit about, you know, what do you just type away or do you outline things? Do you use apps? Do you, Yeah. What, how do you write? Because I'm sure there's loads of other dyslexics listening and I think, you know, you're writing. What kind of tips would you give when it comes to dyslexia and writing stories? It seems to me, and this seems to be corroborated by other writers, that there are two different general kinds of writing styles. One is the person who doesn't think first but just starts writing. The other person is the one who thinks very carefully beforehand and makes a very careful plan. And it's quite common that the person who doesn't think first will run out of steam because they don't have a plan and not finish. It's also quite common that the person who makes a plan will make such a good plan they never get round to writing a book. So it's if if you're one of the other, one or the other, you kind of I would say lean into your instincts. If you want to make a plan, great, make a plan. But don't make a plan at the expense of writing a book. And on the other side, if you're not a planner, fine, but you're gonna to have to make a plan eventually, even if it's the loosest plan you can possibly make. I have tried both. So I have just written and plot and structure just arrives in my head, not in the form of plot and structure, but in the form of symbolism and symmetry, because that I find much easier to visualise than, I suppose, a graph. Um, you know, if there's a red poppy in that painting and a red poppy in that painting, I see them immediately. But if I wrote on a timeline two red poppies, that doesn't really work in my brain. So I have done the whole just write whatever comes to you and I have done the carefully plan and I think for a while I thought I was a carefully planner and I am not. Um, I do work better off of instinct and then when I need the crutch of planning I will bring it in. So don't you find you never stop if you just start without a plan? Do you do you need the plan to bring it to a close then? Is that what's yeah. happening? Yeah, you'll need a so plan you, to finish. You, you, you start off by improvising. Yeah. You, it's like you go and explore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you need something to sort of rein you in That's and right. bring you to a destination. Yeah. And you can tell it in a work of fiction. If you read a book and they haven't made a careful, if they haven't made a plan, it's called the muddle in the middle. And it's where they've run out of steam. They're not sure what's supposed to happen next. They know where they're supposed to get, but they don't know how to get there. And I was writing a book and I got stuck on the muddle in the middle. And I actually had to, I had to put it in a drawer. But 
uh, the book I've been writing since then, the the plot was just much easier actually. So it wasn't there wasn't a muddle in the middle. Okay. Um, yeah. So your first book got stalled by the muddle in the middle. Yeah. And I, it's still there. Well, I was in trying. To, I was trying to create a universe the size of Tolkien's Middle Earth, okay. and that's always going to take a while. Ah, <laughs> the dragon on the hill. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 you just kept going and kept you going, do, and you've got this you, whole oh, landscape and no you, story. You create weather systems. You create plant systems. Oh you create ecosystems. You I'm create entire cultures, and then. What's the story? Oh, it's it's good. Well, don't. I'm not asking you to tell the story, but um, um, I I've done a similar thing. I'm right uh, for the last fifteen, yeah, twenty years. I've been telling my children this story called the Butterfly Princess. Yeah, and I wrote bits of it down. Well, I don't know, twenty, thirty thousand words of it down, and um, but it's it's not a cohesive story. It's lots of short stories. It's like being dropped into the middle of a landscape. And you yeah. see something happen, yeah. and it's a, a little episode, yeah. and then you get dropped in another landscape. You know they're connected, but th- it's not obvious. Yeah. And tons of these little stories, and I know this landscape and this world, but there isn't a cohesive arc. Yeah. You d- I, uh, I have been rude about plans. You do have to sit down. I find um, if you want to learn how to plot a novel, read about script writing structures. They are very helpful and there's a book called into the woods which is a how to write scripts and it gives you sort of the basic arc of a story the danger of that is that you write a completely well average story because you're following all the rules the trick seems to be to learn the general rules of storytelling and then if they serve the story that you are trying to tell use them and if they do not just tell the story that you want to tell and it also seems that you learn all the rules but if you break one of them then it becomes interesting yes that's that's pretty good yeah that's yeah and it but the if you start breaking too many of them everyone gets confused then there isn't enough structure to hold it we're we're creatures of habit yeah we want robert mckee have you read that book oh, no, I haven't. story no. so he's the guy who started you know understanding this narrative the meta-narrative the meta-narrative and how there's basically only seven stories that's right yeah yeah Mm. yeah basically any seven storylines yeah i'm going to teach kids this oh it's good yeah great i'm just so looking forward to teaching kids i've put aside a year oh just for storytelling on how to storytell please can i help nine to twelve yes please i'd love it and and it's like this this month we're going to concentrate on note mapping yeah you know like so go and note map a Disney film. Yeah. You know, watch the film, but this yeah. time when you're watching it, you're going to yeah. note the film and start seeing the pattern yeah. emerge as yeah. you map it out. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I know it's a very advanced sort of awareness level. It might just ruin a few Disney stories for some <laughs> kids. But we are pattern recognizers as dyslexics. Yeah. We yearn to see the big pattern, the big picture, how things connect and so on. And then, you know, different maps for different stages in the process and special, especially scaffold maps, you know, how to scaffold a story. Yeah. Like one of my favourites is writing a murder mystery with 10-year-olds. Right. It's awesome because I say we've only got 40 minutes to write this whole murder mystery and there's 10 of us. Yeah. And we're going to follow the rules of improvisation. So if one says, well, one person says... 
this happened, you go, yes, that happened, and then, yeah. and we just carry on the story until we've I love it. filled it all in. Anyway, I'm looking forward to spending a year doing that. Other tools. Any, do you use apps or gizmos or anything? You're not techie then. No, I'm no. not very techie. Yesterday... A non-techie I know. writer. I, we had a podcast with another author. Yeah. And he is totally on the techie side. No, He's yeah. like techie mind maps, uh, illustrating everything and all the connections and so on. And where's his book? His book's in here. And I've forgotten... I've forgotten the name of the book. Anyway, we'll add it into the podcast notes if you want to yeah. compare and contrast what? two different dyslexia authors. It's brilliant. Yesterday, for the first time, I downloaded um, a mobile banking app and I downloaded QuickBooks, which is so that you can calculate your tax. Oh, yes. Because I, I'm, I'm afraid of several things. Maths and taxes. <laughs> I hate. Uh-huh. I don't mind paying taxes. I like the NHS, but I'm, I can't calculate the numbers. And I find it so frightening that I avoid it. And of course, that's not healthy. So I've been, need a, I need, need a tool. Accountant. Yeah, I do need an accountant, but they're expensive. They are. They are. Yeah. Dyslexics, we need to be so good at our specialised skill that we can afford those people yeah. to delegate it Absolutely. to. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just concentrate on the one thing you're good at until you can give everything to other people. Yes, that's but right. But d- life doesn't work like that. But you do have to still do yeah. things. Yeah, you do. Mm, yeah. So we, we had a wee break and uh, yeah. we talked a bit more deeply about some of the stuff off mm. record, as it were. Well, I was and saying. We were talk- what were you talking? You were. What do you want? What well, you I was saying. About? I think my first reflection after finishing that podcast was how embarrassed I am to list A level achievements and to list academic achievements, because I think when you've come from a place of being a bit browbeaten and you come out of it with an accomplishment, it's very easy to turn that accomplishment into something with which to poke at other people and say, well, you beat me down, but now I can beat you down because I now have this. And I, I wouldn't want a dyslexic person or any, any person, especially a young person, to, to turn their dyslexia journey into a way to crow. I think it's important that we celebrate our victories, but never at the expense of other people. I think that the way I described it to you was, I'm embarrassed of the way that I succeeded sometimes out of spite. There was a genuine desire in me to shove everybody to the bottom of the pile and get myself to the top of the pile because I had been at the bottom. But that's not different from a bully. A bully walks into school and if they have been made to feel small at home, they will try and make you feel small in school. And I, I, when I see the attitude that I had, that, that wasn't, it wasn't kindness. There wasn't gentleness in the way that I approached academia. I just wanted to be the best because it made me feel big. And that's not, as I said to you, no one's going to get to the end of their life and number how many GCSEs they got or remember the grades of their A-levels. They will remember whether they were kind. So if you can get through a dyslexia journey and still be kind to the people who told you you were stupid. For me, that's a greater victory than academic achievement. And that's why I am embarrassed about the attitude I had toward my academic achievement at school, because I think it was wrong. And if I could do it again, I would do it differently. Mm-hmm. Want to tell us a story about the, the bully? Oh, yeah. There was one girl, two really, but one in particular, who just made my life wretched. 
um, she would tell the other girls in our friendship group that if they invited me to their birthday parties, she wouldn't invite them to hers. And hers was always the best one. So I didn't get invited to any birthday parties, things like that. And at the end of school, at the end of GCSEs, because I moved schools for A-levels, her, um, her yearbook was in front of me. I was in French class. And as you do at the end of the year, you're supposed to write something nice in other people's yearbooks. And I had nothing nice to say about this girl. She had trashed my school life. But I found compassion rising in me and an understanding that if she had come into school feeling small, that would have made her want to make me feel small. And they called, they, they put the word bully into her name. I won't name her, but she, they would call her bully so-and-so. And it had become so ingrained in her identity that I don't think she could break free from it. And I just had this moment of empathy for her, not being able to be anything other than a bully. And so I wrote in her yearbook, you're, you're more than this. I believe that you can be other things. It would have been nice to be your friend which was quite a scary thing to write. She could have just laughed in my face or trashed me again. But I watched as my yearbook was passed across the room. I watched her read it. And then I saw my yearbook arrive in front of her and I saw her write in it. And then I watched my yearbook get passed along back to me. And in it, she had written, if I had known you would treat me like this, you would have been the one friend that I had in school. And that, that was a powerful moment. When I look back at the things that happened to me in school, I am more proud of that than I am of my A-levels. To have been kind was more of a victory, learning how to do algebra, um, and it still is. More of a victory than being one of the highest performing pupils in England at that stage. Doesn't matter. Yeah. It won't, it doesn't keep. Yeah. Um, and if you set yourself, school is tricky because there is a hierarchy in school. Yeah. And there's a hierarchy in university, but you're going to leave university one day and there's no hierarchy here. And if there is, it's stupid. Who's bought a house? How fast is your car? How clever are your children? It's, it is dust. It's nothing. But it matters if you're kind to the people. So many people have been unkind to you that they have become mean. Be kind to them. That's a challenge yourself to do that. They should give awards for that rather than who makes the most money. There should be a Forbes 100 list of the kindest people, I don't know. Yes. Well, Hannah, thank you very much. Thank you for asking a question that I really wanted to answer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we are going to segue over to your driving. Well, hopefully I'll be more helpful because obviously I don't use enough tools to be able to recommend them to anybody. <laughs> well, I, I was just fascinated by your driving test example, you know, like how dyslexia affects driving. Yeah. And we had the CEO of Dyslexia Scotland on the podcast and she was talking about dyslexia and driving mm. and how it's one of the things that they've been helping the Scottish government with and, yeah. you know, how it's so important and useful. So in the next podcast, yeah. we're going to talk about dyslexia. How to drive a car. Yeah. Yeah. And people, some people will be thinking, dyslexia and driving? What's, oh, what's wait till you deal? hear the list of things that's difficult <laughs> when you get in a car and you've got dyslexia. <laughs> I can't wait. I can't wait. So Hannah, thank you so much. Thank you so this. much. This podcast is sponsored by dyslexiaproductivitycoaching.com. It's my day job when I'm not hosting this podcast. Tell me, do you know what you want to achieve in the workplace, but you're struggling with how to achieve it? Maybe you suspect some traits of dyslexia are getting in the way. Well, that's where Dyslexia Productivity Coaching comes in, because we give you a simple productivity system for your Apple devices 
that harnesses the creativity that comes with your dyslexia. It includes proven methods like note-taking, reminders, speech-to-text, mind mapping, and more, all tailored to your needs. It'll free up your time and help you achieve outstanding results. Book a complimentary call to discuss it with me, and if you do it soon, I may also be available to coach you personally via Zoom. So don't be shy. Go to dyslexiaproductivitycoaching.com or swipe up and book it now.